Coming up next, the bookening reads The Invisible Man! Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the bookening. I wonder how many people are confused by what novel we're actually reading. Well, you know, we read Dracula year uh, one. I think we read Frankenstein year two or year three. And now it took us till year six to read Invisible Man. Yep. Putting together the Monster Squad. Yep. Exactly. Mr. What's his fit? Mr. Bennett. Uh, that's an old bookening reference. You got to go all the way back to the beginning. It's like season one, episode one. So. Season one, episode one. Yep. Kicking the old pigskin with Jane Austen. All that good stuff. Go back to that episode. My wife likes to listen to those old episodes every once in a while. And she says we are a thousand percent different than we used to be, <laughs> which I suppose makes sense. But I couldn't tell you what's different about us. I know we're more confident, more comfortable, but apparently it's nakedly obvious to the the average listener. Interesting. And, or, I don't know but, if my wife yeah. actually is the average listener, but... Probably not, but she surely she's given you some articulation or reason or something. Yeah, she just she just says you guys are better now. Which you know we've got our we've got our Gladwellian hours in. Actually, we probably don't have our Gladwellian hours. I don't. I don't think we do. But not yet. uh, Maybe you do. Um, Well, you'd be the second closest after me. Probably you appear on the most stuff. What is it? It's 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours. Yeah. That's a lot of hours, but a lot of podcast hours for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If you count like all the deleted material and there's so much more that we do besides the 45 minutes to an hour that actually the listener actually hears. So I think we're all closer to 10,000 than just the, if you added up the amount of podcasts released time or whatever. Over six years. 10,000 hours, 50 weeks a year is 33.33 hours per week for 50 weeks out of the year over a period of six years. That's a lot of hours. Well, each one of these podcasts, we do famously record about 35 hours, and then I whittle down the good comments to about 45 minutes to an hour. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think we've got it covered. So Famously. Famously, yeah. Everybody. Yeah, if you read like the trades, if you read Variety, all the publications that were, people want to know how the sausage is made. Brandon, how the heck are you, my friend? Good. I thought you were going to ask me how the sausage is made. Brandon, how's the sausage made, my friend? Pretty sure they grind the meat and then they get some, for good sausage, they get a pig intestines and stuff like that. Then they squeeze the meat inside the intestine. <laughs> what do they get for bad sausage? Probably intestine, actually. I don't know, Nathan. Yeah, I don't think you use. I think uh, if you're eating sausage, it's been and it's in a casing. That stot a sock. Oh, a sock. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Plastic. Yeah, no. If you've ever eaten a bunch of meat that's been fried in a sock, then you're living the Brandon Chastine life. <laughs> that's what Brandon likes to do: is eat meat in a sock. I like to eat meat in my socks. <laughs> yeah, you get a couple of your socks, you fill them with meat, and my stocking feet, as I say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Guys, Jake, how the heck are you? I'm good. It's a beautiful day. Yeah, I see you more often than I see Brandon, so that's, I'm not as excited to find out who, how you are, but I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. That's good. Yeah, I'm excited about the church plant and moving to Sunday morning soon, and I'm already... It's challenging, and there are a lot of challenges that we're going to have to face with that, but I'm feeling good about it all. 
two weeks, right? Two or two Sundays. Wow. Yeah, two Sundays. Yeah. So like so this Sunday, this is Friday, and so it's a little, you know, week and a half. Yeah. That's so for Easter. Easter. That's right. Easter Sunday, Sunday morning. Nice at the then again YMCA in Evansville, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Come join us, ten a.m. Central Time. Everything's exciting. Everything's wonderful. Well, let's get this episode recorded so Jake can go back to excitingly planning Easter morning. Do you think that's all the banter we need, Nathan? I guess it's enough. I don't know, folks. Jake has to plan an Easter service. You want more banter than this? And Palm Sunday still. And Jake still has to plan Palm Sunday. Come on, folks. Let him off the hook. All right. A little bit more banter. Brandon, you're fat. Thanks, Nathan. You are too. (laughs) It's kind of hurtful when you put it that way. Yeah. I like it, Nathan. (laughs) I think of myself as... What's that? Guess what I'm doing tomorrow, guys. What are you doing? You both would just love to do along with me. I am going oh. to go into a cave for 10 hours. <laughs> oh, literally. Literally. Yeah. No. Literally. <laughs> you thought he was like studying something or. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what's, what's uh, going on with that? Literally going into a cave for 10 hours. It's going to be fun. I hate spelunking. Hate it. Yeah. Hate the thought of it. Yep. I think we've talked about this. Yeah, no. Sometimes Brandon sends us sends us cave pictures just to torture us, and it's true. It's he it's thinks awful. it's hilarious. It's, yeah. it's terrible. I'll make sure to send. Or you he guys. tells us stories about getting stuck or almost getting stuck in a cave. It's like no. I'll make okay. sure to send you guys plenty of pictures. Oh my goodness, I don't even want to think about it. The crawl just to get inside this. Can cave. we just like move on? Can we like are we done bantering or the crawl to get inside this cave <laughs> is something we're not going to talk about. It's about here. an hour long. Thank you very much. The crawl. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's enough. I am, I am. You're going to mute me? Putting the kibosh (laughs) on this. Well, if we see an obituary that says a fat idiot uh, (laughs) stuck in cave. Yeah, you'll know it's me. We'll know it's you. Thanks, Nathan. I don't think you're an idiot. Well, you know what I think we need to do? We need to talk about this invisible man. Sounds Hmm. good. How can you talk about something you can't see, Nathan? (laughs) That's a good that's a good point. And speaking of good points, I'm sure Brandon will make several as we talk about Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man, a novel that I assert might be one of the best that we've read on the bookening. There's definitely some rough material in it, but I think it might be in the running for the great American novel. I don't know. Maybe I'll be argued out of that. Maybe I'll try and make the argument and it won't hold up. I don't know what's going to happen in the series of podcasts that we do on the Invisible Man, but I'm going to start there. I think this is a superb work of literature, and I'm excited to talk about it. And I'm excited to hear the contextual text and a man from Texas who gives context on great literary works. His name is Brandon Chastain, and he's going to provide some context on this work. Take it away with your context, Mr. Chastain. All right. Well, let's do this, Nathan. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Are you excited, Jake? I am so excited. I'm on the edge of well, my seat. I'm settling guys, into mine. You're going to have to help me pillow, out soon. Got my bed behind me. Yep. Got your popcorn out. Got your popcorn, yeah. Well, once upon a time, there was a little boy named Ralph Waldo Ellison. That little boy was born March 1st, 1913. <laughs> this is great stuff so far, guys, huh? This is good stuff. And even from a young boy, he dreamed that he would grow up wait, to be... Wait, wait. Was he named after Ralph Waldo Emerson? I don't think so. 
Yeah, I mean, just completely that is kind of silly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Sorry for interrupting with such a stupid question. Do well, famous black people always take two names from famous white people? Because Ralph Waldo, I'm not. Emerson, you're not gonna. You're not gonna pull me into this conversation. <laughs> and Martin Martin Luther King. <laughs> Are those the only two famous black people you know? You know, (laughs) friend, the two most famous black people, Michael Jordan, both appropriated their names. Yeah, but isn't his actual name Michael Keaton Jordan? Nathan, I can see the canceling happen like right now. (laughs) This episode is not even released. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) we're just getting canceled all over the place. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop this conceit. How about that? Yeah, this is going to be. An interesting few episodes, I can already tell. All right, Brandon, why um, don't you go back to, to reading the children's book that you were reading to us about uh, oh, Ralph Waldo? No, Nathan, I don't know. Ellison. I think it would be better if we were all in the same room with you, Nathan, and we could just kind of grab you and, you know, pull you back from the From, from the, the edge. Brink. Yeah. Killing their show. No, listen, we're not getting canceled. This is going to be a very respectful podcast. Uh, according to that one review, we may already be canceled. Oh, yeah, that was a great review. <laughs> We are a bunch of misogynists. If people want, like to read our reviews, which I don't know why you would want like to read your, our reviews if you're not us, but we got our best critical review, I think. Uh, <laughs> it was the, really the fun. Long, the longest and most scathing. And I didn't agree with it, but... Boy, did they really go at it, though. They went at it. Yeah. Well, Something you guys else. are my favorite I, misogynists. We've had, uh, we've had better critical reviews where they've been, I think, more honest about who we are. Well, there, yeah, there have been some three-star reviews. Those tend right. to be good, where they're just like, yeah, I like this, I don't like this, whatever, on, on yeah. balance. Th- those are the balanced ones. I would say this is probably our most useful zero-star or one-star review, which doesn't mean it's cogent or correct or anything that I particularly respect or value, but I would say... They're coming hard. They're coming hard. And well, yeah, kind of, kind of fun. So yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Brandon. So we're talking about Ellison, Nathan, and mm-hmm. he was born. We've established he was born in 1930. And I think this has been a trend with context recently that we establish when they were born, and then we end up like getting back to the bio like maybe 30 minutes later. Yeah, no, I love it. <laughs> but we I have a, we we've established that he was born mm-hmm. and that he died. He is no longer alive, which means that he died. We've established that now. We've established what, the nature of death. We have established the nature of death. It's a philosophical podcast. It is a philosophical podcast. Have we really established the nature of death? My wife is making fun Maybe of me. Maybe we've established the definition of death. Hang right. on just hang on just a minute. Hey, get in here. Philosophically, here. of course. She, my wife is taking a picture of me, so now I'm gonna make her say hi. Can I make her say hi? Please. Oh, yeah. Come here, Anna. Come here. You gotta say hi. Tell everybody what you think of Ralph Ellison. <laughs> Well, I'll say hello. Hi. Hi, Anna. Hi. (laughs) She took a picture. Maybe she'll send it to you guys. It'll last longer. I know that much. Yeah, that's right. Uh, She's she's now going back to the kitchen, and yes, she is taking her shoes off. Is your wife pregnant? No. So she's two for three. She's two for three. (laughs) Barefoot in the kitchen. She is barefoot in the kitchen. Take that, person who called us a misogynist. That's right. (sighs) Man. So Ralph Ellison, he was Ralph born, Ellison. now he's dead. He is dead. So as far as the novelists we've talked about, he wasn't a very prolific writer. Um, trying to think who that would put him in conversation with. To Kill a Mockingbird. Definitely To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. 
James Joyce to an extent, not overly prolific. Salinger, maybe. And this also puts him in, yeah, and this puts him also into the category of, well, this doesn't put him into the category. He also falls into the category of writers who kind of got a late start. Uh, he didn't really know he wanted to be a writer until you know, his early 30s. It kind of actually puts him in conversation with Ishiguro because he got a late start as well. And Ishiguro was actually more interested in movies when he was young. And Ellison was more interested in music. In fact, he went to the Tuskegee. So the institute that shows up in this novel is loosely based, well, not loosely based on, it's very heavily based on the Tuskegee Institute. I think that's how you say it, or is it Tuskegee? That's a great no question. Idea. No idea. Probably should figure that out. But anyways, in Tuskegee or Tuskegee, I'll just say it both ways, was founded by the guy who's in the background of that whole first couple of chapters, the founder. Remember that guy? And in the book, I don't know if it ever does it give his name. I know it gives the name of the president who took over after the founder left, but I don't think that he ever actually named the founder. I think he just called him the founder, right? Anyways, that was Booker T. Washington. So he did go to Tuskegee. And so a lot of a lot of the events in this story are very loosely autobiographical. In fact, even at the opening of the novel where he has all the the lights that surround him and he's very interested in the audio equipment and stuff and his and he's got the jazz that's playing. Ralph Ellison, his entire life was also very interested in what would you call it? Audio a what that sort of equipment, radio equipment, but more more of this he would have been very fascinated in the technicalities of this podcast with the microphones and all that mm. stuff and the things that surrounded my soul among lions and all that jazz. They do folk, not jazz. Uh, yeah, they do folk, not jazz. Brendan was referring to Bob Fosse's Broadway musical, All That Jazz. All That Jazz, my favorite. They've never performed that either. Yeah. Though they do dance like Bob Fosse every time they sing the songs. Right. <laughs> that I can't confirm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> anyways, we're, right. <laughs> it's funny. That would be amazing. Someone needs to combine Christian psalm writing folk music with Bob Fosse dance routines. I wouldn't be surprised if that exists. It's probably something we can figure out. Anyways. Get on the internet. All this to say that there was a lot of interests that laid the groundwork for what would become the Invisible Man. A lot of living that laid the groundwork for what would become the Invisible Man. Or not the Invisible Man. Invisible Man. Let's not get it confused with H.G. Wells, Nathan. <laughs> Jake is putting something in his beard. <laughs> What is that? <laughs> it's a little hair clip that was laying around. Nice. This is going so well. <laughs> Quality podcasting. It's what we do. Yeah. And so I think this is important because you see all those influences developing in his novel. This, is, this was his first work, and it would be pretty much his only work of fiction. He did write another novel that would become Juneteenth, but it was published posthumously. And so this was the only finished work that he had except outside of a book of essays. And yet, according to one review I saw, that makes it, that's enough to make him one of the literary giants of American letters. And so, and I think that I, not to do, okay, not to, uh, <laughs> this point, <laughs> This is more of a test to see how distracted they can make Brandon. And they don't realize the severity of my ADD. Um, it's pretty easy to just, which is why having a job that's so committed to attention to detail for me is just so funny. 
that that's what I do. But anyways, that's an aside. What was I saying? A literary no, giant. Yeah. Oh, I, th- I think we'll all agree. Jake was Maybe. holding up a, I think we just have to share this with our <laughs> listeners. Jake, Jake was holding up a, what do you call it? A uh, bobblehead. bobblehead. A Martin, Martin Luther, not King Jr., but just the original, <laughs> well, the white one. It's an amazing story. The white one, yes. It's important to point out that he was white. But yeah, I, I just started you know what? I having can... Martin Luther bob his head as Brandon was speaking in the... You know, in a yeah. sort of mocking gesture. It was pretty funny. <laughs> I thought it was funny. His head at me like he's trying to. I can already someday. See I'll tell the story of this on the of this bobblehead on on this podcast. I think I have on Sound of Sanity. Maybe you you have told it on Sound of Sanity. One of the early episodes. People can go find it right now. Hey, why why not just tell it now? <laughs> <laughs> no, because Brandon, we're doing very important context on Ralph Ellis. Yeah, I can already can hear the trying to distract us. That you know, this is kind of a landmark thing that we're doing here with ralph ellison and we're taking it so seriously <laughs> you know what we are affording ralph ellison the same respect <laughs> that we afford to every author that we do that is that is true <laughs> ralph ellison we love you man we i just, love this uh, book it's really good it is really good it's a work of genius it's yeah. a, it's one of the best books that we've done on the bookening, I think. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to litigate, as I like to say, and you guys like to make fun of me for saying. We'll have to litigate it, but I think that's true. What so. a nerd word to use, Nathan. <laughs> litigate. <laughs> oh man. Oh, it's a podcast for out. lawyers now. We're gonna <laughs> yeah. litigate. Yeah. Nathan. It's not a law podcast, Nathan. Uh, yeah. Take um, ourselves that seriously. Got a thesaurus over there, Nathan? Huh? Want to throw something else at us too? Uh, besides the law, what what am I throwing at you? I don't know, Nathan. <laughs> the book. All right, Ralph Waldo Ellison. Where's Waldo? We've talked about the two books he published. Yep. We're going to talk more about this one. Juneteenth. We know that it was posthumous. I'm just now <laughs> reciting all the things we know so far. We know that he was born in 1913, which means that that puts him too late to be a modernist. Isn't that sad? It is sad. So much of our context is just you saying the same things about modernism. Yeah. I know, so I can't say those things. I have to say something different. <laughs> well, how does he sit in relation to modernism, Brandon? Oh, well, he's a postmodernist technically, but <laughs> he's not really because actually he falls more into late modernism. Sorry, go ahead. Late Harlem Renaissance. Ooh. In fact, he met one of my favorite poets and uh, kind of got him interested in becoming a writer, which was Langston Hughes. There you go. So there you have it. I wonder, Nathan, maybe I'll get up and I'll see (laughs) if uh, my book of letters from Langston Hughes has any reference to Ralph Ellison. That would be really interesting. I didn't even think to look in that. That'd be fun. Wouldn't that be fun? Real-time research, folks. We'll do that here at the end and people can hear it happening, shuffling all the pages and everything. But we do need to talk more about we do need to talk more about him. In fact, did you guys read the introduction? Well, we don't all have the same volume. This is the volume I have, and nobody on the podcast can see it, but I am showing you guys. I have what I thought was the standard volume, and it does not have an introduction that I don't think. Well, the introduction, the one where he talks about himself and the way that the story came to be? No. Well, I think that when we get here, I'm going to read a few paragraphs because it's pretty fun, the actual the way that the story came about. And I think, what better way to hear about it than from the words of the author instead of me? All right, well, let's keep going. So he, we know that his name was Ralph Waldo as well. And we assume that that was because his father, we don't assume it, it's actually true. His father loved literature. In fact, he hoped that his young son would grow up to be a poet. And he kind of fulfilled his father's dreams. 
I say hoped, and I and I there's kind of an ambiguity around whether or not that was actually the case because Ralph Waldo Emerson, not <laughs> Ellison, had to hear this secondhand through his mother because his father died when he was young, actually kind of in a very brutal way. He was stabbed in the stomach with an ice block that fell, and the shards that were left behind they penetrated into his abdomen, ended up killing him. So, and a very, yeah, so it's crazy. Wait, so a, like a, a block of ice fell off of a house or like, I'm trying to imagine what you actually mean. It was dropped here. I'll find the quote. I'll, I'll find the uh, reference. It was dropped from a hopper. And huh. so they loaded into a hopper. It fell off. It was a hundred pounds. It crushed his abdomen and the little shards stuck in there. And then he died, I think in complications when they were attempting to, cure it afterwards in operation so so it wasn't malice or anything it was just a, a freak accident freak accident yep hmm. but this was in oklahoma city this is where he was born he was born in oklahoma city oklahoma and after his father died this would have been when he was around eight years old they moved to gary indiana which is where he spent most of his childhood and youth just north of us here in indiana so he was an indiana boy growing up at that point, Gary, Indiana was did not have quite the reputation that it has today, but I don't know if anybody listening to the podcast knows about Gary. It's, it's, it's a pretty notorious city, right? Well, the, the fun fact that I know about Gary is that for a long time, I don't know whether this is still true, but when, when Hollywood needed to film apocalyptic movies or desolate kind of like the road type things, I think one of the Transformers movies shot there for, for a scene where the Decepticons had wiped out part of the planet or something like that. It's just a very poor, desolate place. It's like, it's like Metro Chicago, but it's like some of the worst of, it's like the Detroit part of Chicago. Yeah. Yep. But it's Indiana. It's on our side. Sort of like East St. Louis. Yeah. A lot of like East, East St. Louis. Yep. Yeah. Those stereotypes. And so they moved there, though, before any of that had kind of taken root. They were part of the flight that actually would eventually cause Gary to become that because then everybody, like all the white people, would move away from Gary and go to where they could escape the dying, whatever, what, the dying, the Rust Belt, the, the results of that. And then a lot of the other families who couldn't flee were stuck there and it became a very poverty stricken area. And but anyways, his mother took him to Gary, Indiana, because she felt that if they stayed in the South, her boys would not have as good a chance of surviving as if they moved North. Those were literally her reasons for taking them North, was so that they would have a better chance of actually making it to adulthood. So, like I said, he became very interested in music, and he actually led the band for a while at his high school. But he wanted to get into the Tuskegee Institute, applied a couple times, and finally was admitted. And it would be his experiences there at Tuskegee that would kind of it would kind of sour his impression of the university, and you can definitely see that playing out in you Invisible Man. He doesn't have a great opinion of the Tuskegee Institute or for that particular attempt by the African American, the Black community, to make peace with white culture. And so that, that definitely is a big theme in Invisible Man, right? He, he, he cycles through. It's a little bit like an odyssey or this epic adventure where he cycles through all the different attempts that black culture has made to make peace with white culture, right? To integrate, so to play the game, 
to yeah, and so, fit in, to make peace with, all those things. Yeah. And so he starts at Tuskegee, and that's where you have that really fascinating, really brilliant stuff that happens with the trustee, even though it's really hard to get through. And all of this is his criticism of the sort of Booker T. Washington, Uncle Tom mentality. And he got that a lot there at, at Tuskegee in, the Institute. However, at the Tuskegee Institute, he went to study music, but he, that's also where he began to get more into literature. And it was in particular, he says, reading The Wasteland, that was his sort of awakening moment as a literary artist. So look at that. Modernism does come back into play, guys. You can't escape. <laughs> I'm so shocked you found a connection. <laughs> yeah, you can't escape the modernist pool. Let's see. So anyways, he eventually leaves Tuskegee. He ends up in New York because, oddly enough, he decided, decided he wanted to study sculpture. I mean, it's in New York, and he wants to go to New York, unsurprisingly, because he knows that in Harlem, that's where you're having this renaissance start ta that's taking place during the modernist movement. But Langston Hughes is seen as the figurehead of this. He meets Langston Hughes. He also meets Richard Wright, who wrote Native Son, and they have a long and complicated relationship. But it's through Richard Wright and Langston Hughes that he kind of gets into the writing and a little bit more of the extremist communist attempts at, so the, the stuff that would become like the Black Panthers and Malcolm X, that sort of crowd. Langston Hughes, but especially Richard Wright, if you, if you know anything about Richard Wright and his works, was more of a part of that movement. And so he gets involved with that. And again, you see that in An Invisible Man because the exact same thing happens to the protagonist there. He gets involved with that. And guess what? It doesn't provide his resolution, right? It doesn't give him the answers that he really wants. But it is there that writing for Richard Wright and writing for this particular group that he realizes he's got a talent and Richard Wright kind of encourages him to begin to think about being a writer. And so a lot of his early stuff is... Are essays, right? And so that's actually really the majority of his writing career would be as an essayist and as a teacher. It was, he is such an interesting guy because it's a lot like Harper Lee, except that he did, he actually did a lot more writing than Harper Lee did because Harper Lee didn't, didn't even leave us that many essays that she wrote. He did leave us a whole a significant body of critical stuff he did. And then he left us this one masterpiece. And I guess if you have to, if you're going to leave your mark on the literary universe, why not leave it that way, right? And get your one great masterpiece out there. Let everything else leave your thoughts about literature and just call it a day. If you have it in you to write a masterpiece without having to have the practice of other novels first. Mm -hmm. Maybe he did and burned them all or something, but my goodness, what a, yeah. what a masterpiece that mm -hmm. seems yep. to be out of thin air. So just a couple other things before we get to Invisible Man. Obviously, he would have been of the age to have gone and fought in World War II, and he would have actually been willing to, but he was never drafted. So, and a lot Is of that people, a, a race thing or just a yeah, a lot of people mark that up to race thing, kind of a luck of the draw, but also kind of a race thing. So, which is unsurprising, right? I mean, this is still mid America. So, let's see. But it was while there that he met someone who's very influential, Fanny McConnell, who really encouraged him to begin writing. And from 1947 to 1951, he earned some money writing book reviews and was able to live on that to start focusing on what would become Invisible Man. All right. And so just, just to kind of give you, and I really don't think that, so 
we're going to be we talk we're, if we're going to talk about this novel, we're going to have to confront the realities of race and how awful it was at that time in America, right? He doesn't sugarcoat it for us. Mm-hmm. I also think he he approaches it more honestly than we do today, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. But like, he had the life that you would expect a black man to have had in early America. He had to have all sorts of different jobs, and you see that in this book too, like the brilliant stuff when he gets involved with the paint, right? All that stuff, and. He, he had to try and put together a living any way that he could before he could finally put together a living as a writer. And so he did it through book reviews, actually. And this, this is where it just is, this is a complete aside, but I was listening to an interview by Vonnegut, of all people, the other day. And he was talking about how different the landscape used to be for American writers, where you could literally send in a short story or an essay and get paid enough from that one story or essay to live for a few months. People used to pay really well for writing in America. And uh, he admitted that that's not the case anymore. You, you, Even if you get something like accepted by the New Yorker today, it's not going to be enough to support you for maybe more than a month. Like a short story, I think maybe gets a couple thousand dollars for them. And so anyways, that sounds like a, a dream to have been able to do something like that. Anyway, I, and so that just, I don't know why I'm mentioning that. Well, because of Ellison. So he was able to produce these and write these book reviews, and they did. They supported his family, similar to what T.S. Eliot did in his early days when he was trying to become a poet. And these places would pay him enough that he was able to then write this book, work on this book for many years, actually. I think he worked on it for a few years and then finally got it published, and it made his name as a writer and was seen. It won the National Book Award. And... Everybody was always expecting him to do something else, but this was in the 50s, and he lasted almost a whole another half century without another foundational work that he produced, except for a, a volume of essays in the 60s, I think. And you have Juneteenth. So, But what this shows also is that he was a very careful writer, and I think that comes through with his Invisible Man, is that he was very much concerned about style. He was very much concerned about craft. And I think that a lot of... So one, one other way that he supported himself, and I'll read here in just a minute, is that he would take, he, he was a photographer. He went around and he took pictures as well. And I think you can kind of see that cinematic eye. You can also see just that, which, you know, that attention to detail, that eye that's looking at things in, a, in very closely and intimately. You can also hear his love for music coming through. There is a sense which he's a very poetic prose writer. He's a very well rounded artist. Sculpture yeah. school and, or, or whatever, the music that he studied everything. Yeah. And so he's very concerned about craft and each chapter is its own little, like there are these chapter styles that I love where each chapter is kind of its own little short story and still all works together, but you could imagine, and some of these actually were like the early scene where he goes to give his speech that actually was exerted and uh, produced as a story uh, before this was produced. Say what? That makes perfect sense. yeah. Yeah. Before this was published. So anyway, so how about we let him tell a little bit of the story about what it was like to write this book? This might last a little bit, but I think it's pretty fun. So it all began during the summer of 1945 in a barn in Waitsfield, Vermont, where I was on sick leave from service in the Merchant Marine. And with the war's end, so like I said, he was he still enlisted in things, but he never got drafted to actually go overseas. Where I was on sick leave from service in the Merchant Marine and with the war's end, it continued to preoccupy me in various parts of New York City including its crowded subways, in a converted 141st Street stable, in a one-room ground-floor apartment on St. Nicholas Avenue, 
and most unexpectedly, in a suite otherwise occupied by jewelers located on the eighth floor of number 608 Fifth Avenue. So these are all the places that he had worked on this novel and lived. It was there, thanks to the generosity of Beatrice and Francis Stiegmuller, then spending a year abroad, I discovered that writing could be just as difficult in a fellow writer's elegant office as in a crowded Harlem apartment. There were, however, important differences, some of which worked wonders for my shaky self-confidence and served, perhaps, as a catalyst for the wild mixture of elements that went into the evolving fiction. The proprietors of the suite, Sam and Augusta Mann, saw to it that I worked undisturbed, took time off for lunch, often at their own expense, and were most encouraging of my efforts. Thanks to them, I found myself keeping a businessman's respectable hours and the suite's constant flow of beautiful objects and its occupants' expert evaluations of pearls and diamonds. Platinum and gold gave me a sense of living far above my means. Thus, actually and symbolically, the eighth floor was the highest elevation upon which the novel unfolded. But it was a long, far cry from our Bellows Street-level apartment. It might well have proved disorienting had I not been consciously concerned with a fictional character who was bent upon finding his way in areas of society whose manners, motives, and rituals were baffling. Interestingly enough, it was only the elevator operators who questioned my presence in such an affluent building. But this, after all, was during a period when the doormen of buildings located in middle and upper class neighborhoods routinely directed such as myself to their service elevators. I hasten to add, however, that nothing of the kind ever happened at 608, for once the elevator men became accustomed to my presence, they were quite friendly. And that was true even of the well-read immigrant among them who found the idea of my being a writer quite amusing. By contrast, certain of my St. Nicholas Avenue neighbors considered me of questionable character. This ostensibly was because Fanny, my wife, came and went with regularity. So at this point, the Fanny that I had mentioned, he had married her. This ostensibly was because Fanny, my wife, came and went with regularity of one who held a conventional job while I was often at home and could be seen at odd hours walking our Scottish terriers. But basically, it was because I fitted none of the roles, legal or illegal, which my, with my neighbors were familiar. I was neither a thug, numbers runner, nor pusher, postal worker, doctor, dentist, lawyer, tailor, undertaker, barber, bartender, nor preacher. And when my speech revealed a degree of higher education, it was also clear that I was not of the group of professionals who lived or worked in the neighborhood. My indefinite status was therefore a subject of speculation and a source of unease, especially among those whose attitudes and modes of conduct were at odds with the dictates of law and order. This was made for a nodding, this made for a nodding relationship in which my neighbors kept their distance and I kept mine. But I remained suspect in one snowy afternoon as I walked down a shady street into the winter sunshine, wino lady let me know exactly how I rated on her checklist of sundry types and characters. It's got a word. I don't know if I can read it. What do you <laughs> okay, say? Cancel, please. Yes or no. <laughs> Leaning blearily against the facade of a corner bar as I approached and directing her remarks at me through her woozy companion, she said, now that there must be some kind of sweetback because while his wife has her son, some kind of little slave, I'll ever see him do is walk them darn dogs and shoot some darn pictures. This is a kid's podcast, right? I got to say that. I, th I think we get the idea. Yeah. Frankly, I was startled by such a low rating for by sweetback. She meant a man who lived off the earnings of a woman, a type usually identified by his leisure, his flashy clothes, flamboyant personal style, and the ruthless business enterprise of an out and out pimp. So he's talking about how his own black community relates to him, right? And how they see him. I don't know if that's been clear. Mm -hmm. All qualities of which I was so conspicuously lacking that she had to laugh at her own provocative Sally. However, and so one thing I find this helpful is because, again, it shows that Invisible Man is very much an autobiographical piece, right? He felt that he 
was kind of stuck in this limbo between the black world and the white world. He didn't quite fit either place. And especially at this time of his life, which one, one, one place that he wrote this was like somebody lent, uh, loaned him out a part of their barn. And so he was actually writing it up in their barn. That's part of the lore of this book is that part of it was written in somebody's barn and just all these various places that he was trying to find where he could get this book written. However, the ploy was intended to elicit a response, whether angry or conciliatory. She was too drunk or reckless to care as long as it threw some light into the shadows of my existence. Therefore, I was less annoyed than amused. And since I was returning home with 50 legally earned dollars from a photographic assignment, I could well afford to smile while remaining silently concealed in my mystery. Anyways, I thought that's kind of fun to read that. And it goes even longer than that. But if we were to read the whole thing, that would be a whole other podcast. So trying to see if there's anything else that might be worth reading from this. Anyways, I think in one of our podcasts, I can't remember which one it would have been. We did talk briefly about the Harlem Renaissance. Yes, we did. I Oh, boy. You'd think that would be an easy thing to remember, but... Would it have been during our Harper Lee episodes? Yeah, maybe. You you may have just taken the, the opportunity because you love to talk about the Harlem Renaissance. Well, I think that all I would say is that you can go back and listen to those episodes. I think I read a poem from the Harlem Renaissance. What All you need to know for this particular novel is that the Harlem Renaissance both provided the background for him being able to write this in the first place, the work that Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston and some of those had already done with their work in writing in in Harlem at the time, where they had, and this was all kind of building off of the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, who I'm sure people have heard of, where you had what the name implied, a renaissance of black writing. And it came from that area in Harlem. And so it became an area where all black writers and uh, artists were trying to get to. And so that led him there. And that's where he met Langston Hughes and also Richard Wright. James Baldwin would have been another name people might be familiar with. And he got there as a young man. And so they kind of provided the groundwork for him being able to then become a writer. He wasn't necessarily part of the Harlem Renaissance. But he definitely was inspired and produced by the Harlem Renaissance. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, in other words, we don't really have to go into the intricacies of the Harlem Renaissance to understand where Ralph Ellison came from. We just need to know that there was a lot of work, literary work, that was kind of done before him so that he could have that platform that he could then write, I think, the masterpiece. As much as I love Langston Hughes, I still think that Ralph Ellison wrote the masterpiece of of the Harlem Renaissance. This was kind of like its crowning jewel, its achievement, all built up to this this novel in particular. Well, I don't and personally think that Native Son comes anywhere close, if that's the <clears throat> comparison point. No. And then there are Claude McKay. There are a lot of names that everybody should be very familiar with. And uh, I think the one thing we might have talked about in that episode is that there's a sort of – you don't want to get too much caught up in politics, and the, it makes everybody so nervous – when you talk about like the canon and how wide it is, like conservatives feel like we can't talk about that. And yet the I think the backlash against that, and I and I see it in reformed and in conservative and in Christian circles, is that therefore they like just embrace the canon so hard that they exclude everything that's not in the canon. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. And so what gets left out is this literary movement. I've never once went to a classical or reformed or Christian school that ever has added Ellison or Hughes or any of those guys into what they read. And I think that's because they've decided to have such a strong backlash where they're going to have everybody read Homer and 
you know, Shakespeare and all these guys that they'd really lose a very significant. What's funny is they'll actually have them read like Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that, that's the way they say, look, we're not racist. They're, they're reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. Right. It's like the worst of it all. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you lose out on this really, really wonderful, beautiful stuff. I am really glad I had a professor as an undergrad who had me read Invisible Man. And then I realized, man, there's a lot of stuff out there that I haven't read that wasn't introduced to me through this sort of canon approach that is really still wonderful stuff. I understand the chip that certain conservatives have because I've had to put up with the Norton anthology of poetry, for example. You buy that fifth edition or whatever edition they're on, and it's like, we found 12 additional crappy women poets from the 16th century that nobody's heard of that we're going to jam down your throat now. So in in the the spirit of uh, inclusivity and wokeness and all that, and it's just like, please. Yeah, so, and I get that. I get that instinct. I get it, but I do think that sort of exclusive take leaves out things that I guess it's the stance the bookening's always taken that you should have. Yes, we respect the past. We respect the opinions of the past, but you also need to read with discernment yourself and understand that for a, for one reason, a lot of this whole canon was put together before these guys were even writers, right? And so now, not only were they excluded. But pretty much any modern writer would be excluded, right? Mm-hmm. I think it would even be, I think Hemingway and Fitzgerald are both lucky that they get him included. <laughs> They're like right on the cusp as to whether they, they almost would get cut out, right? And so I do think that's just another part of it. It is just a, guild, uh, a gilding of the past, not a gelding of the past, a gilding of it, different mm-hmm. So anyways, that just being my way of encouraging people to go out and read these guys because they are definitely worth reading. I would say all these Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, they're as good as any poet. Yep. And Ralph Ellison and James Baldwin are great novelists. I'm not not such a big Zora Neale Hurston guy. Yeah, she's weird. He's weird. Especially that story Sweat. It's a strange one. I've never read Sweat, but I have read (laughs) Their Eyes Were Watching God, and that is a weird, weird, weird book. Yeah. And so, and yeah, then also completely acknowledging that the opposite extreme where you just read anything and everything and then have, are terrified to ever make judgment calls on the value of anything that's not by a white man, then that's also damaging. It can really, that can geld you. Mm. (laughs) You don't want to be gilded. You don't want to be gelded. Yeah. When one extreme is gilded, the other extreme is gelded. Got to walk the line, man. Mm Got to walk that line. I guess the only other thing that I think is interesting and to point out about the, well, not the only other thing, but something I would point out about the Harlem Renaissance is that one thing that does bother me about modern criticism is that it's all moved to being political and that it finds its value in politics and it finds its value in statements of identity and all this sort of stuff so that literature is no, and literature can't be beautiful based on its craft. It's more of beautiful based on its political value, right? Uh, if they even care about beauty at all, anyways. However, for something like the Harlem Renaissance, where the only way, so like Flannery O'Connor thought the only way she could get across her point was by screaming and by drawing startling figures, right? Sure, for her, because she was writing as a Christian and people really weren't going to want to listen to her any other way, that's true. But there's also a reality that even she didn't have to face as a white woman in the South that all these Harlem Renaissance figures did have to face. And that was being a black artist trying to convince the world that you actually had a right 
to be a writer just as much as they did, right? That that inherently is going to become political, right? Mm -hmm. So a large part of like Claude McKay and Langston Hughes and where I think people might eye roll with the conservative crowd is like, oh, look at these people just being just being political. But I think there's a reality there that we don't necessarily have a right to say anything about because it was their if they wanted to be artists, that's the only way they were going to do it mm-hmm. was by fighting tooth and nail for it. So yeah, I just think that that it it's going to be inherently political, and I don't. I think it would be unfair to judge these unfairly because of that, right? Yeah. Just because we have a knee jerk reaction, which I think is fair enough against any art today that tries to be political just for the sake of being political. Mm-hmm. Invisible Man is a political book. Yet it does transcend it too, and which yeah. is what makes it such a wonderful book too. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that. But, anyways, those are the things I wanted to say. I was cool. going to do something else, wasn't I? Yeah, you got to get your book and oh, yeah. uh, Langston Hughes. There may not be anything here, but I see it on the shelf. I'll be right back. All right, I'll keep the listeners entertained. There goes Brandon. He's getting out of his chair. He's walking over. Oh, this is exciting. Oh man, folks, can you can you feel the hairs on the back of your neck rising with anticipation as Brandon gets this book? Aren't you excited? Are you salivating now? Let's yeah. see. All right. Oh, here he is. All right. He's back. He's got he's he's got the book. Ellison Ralph. Ellison Ralph. 260. Looks like there's some kind of reference. Well, here's one. <laughs> It's nothing. In 1944, he says that he sold some theater tickets to Ralph Ellison. Nice. And he mentions him by name. Let's see. It's supposed to be one more mention on page 309. Let's see what this All is. All right. I'm excited. We're probably going to fall on. I'm probably going to fall on my face with this. Mm, not your fault. We we just said we were going digging. We didn't say what we'd find. Yeah. I'm guessing solid gold on page 309. If I can find anything. Let's see. Oh, here you go. This actually is fairly interesting. Here we go. Ready? I miss the Marcon pieces, but if they're as good as your letters, I'll have to borrow the New Yorkers from a rumor downstairs and read them. You are a good writer your own self, so this is to someone named Ina. Ellison is my protege. Dick Wright and I. Me first, because I introduced him to Dick, started him off writing, and look at him now. Wonderful reviews. He and his wife just wrote me a swell letter sharing their good new good fortune and spirit. I expect he'll make some money too. So there you go. There you go. That's really sweet. I'm glad yeah. we found that. That that actually was pretty fun to read. Yeah. So there you go. Some evidence directly from Links and Hughes's letters that he knew Ellison and they were very fond of one another. So I'm his protege. And there was a little bit of that. Well, he's mine, not Dick Wright's, which I'm assuming is Richard Wright. Yeah. So, I don't know. There what you go. Look at that, people. Research pays off. Research pays off. We dug for gold and we found some. That's great. Ah, yeah. You think we'll ever do Native Son? No. Yeah, I don't really want to. I mean, it's fine, whatever. It's, I probably would rather do Go Tell It on the Mountain before that. I, I would love to do Go Tell It on the Mountain. I think I might love Go Tell It on the Mountain, actually. Oh, I do. I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to James Baldwin. I like him a lot. Yeah. He's quite the character, but I think Langston, on the Mountain rules. I think Langston Hughes was the best poet of them all. Maybe, And I think he's up there with some of the best American poets. He has some of that. So in the Ishiguro episode, we talked a little bit about how Ishiguro can sometimes be cheesy. Mm-hmm. Ishiguro, Langston Hughes can sometimes be cheesy. Right. But his best poetry is some of the best. So, You know who else can sometimes be cheesy is William Shakespeare. He like, sure could. I think the great authors take risks and sometimes, sometimes they, those risks don't pay off. That's right. Sometimes they miss. 
Yeah. So they take big swings though. Yeah. So who's better Baldwin or Ellison? I guess I'm going to say Ellison. Yeah. Ellison has his one masterpiece, but Baldwin has a lot of masterpiece. Yeah. I've only read go tell it on the mountain, but go tell it on the mountain is like a awesome guitar solo of a spectacular fireworks show of just, I think that Ellison is definitely, I think that James Baldwin is like the, he's their, I don't know. He's their best intellect for sure. I think that's without, goes without saying. So, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll litigate more of this as we go, I suppose, but uh, yes, we will. I'm looking forward to talking invisible man over the next couple of weeks. So yeah. Speaking of talking, let's talk about donor shout outs. Nice. Good transition. Let's say our favorite breeds of monkey as I read donors. <laughs> I you think guys- this sounds like all Jake as I try to resolve something here. <laughs> okay. All right, Jake, bring Got it. bring some monkeys. Uh, Robert and Ronda the Lovebirds. Frankenstein. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Frankenstein. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Frankenstein. The Immortal Frank- Chelsea E. Frankenstein. Oh, oh, thanks, Brendan. You're Brendan <laughs> in here. Great. Uh, Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Frankenstein. Leave the Valley. Frankenstein. Andrew Nestor the Lovebirds. Frankenstein. The Keith Master Davis. Ryan the Red Avenger. Wow, I don't even know how to sing anymore. No, no, a constrictor. Frankenstein, Frankenstein, Frankenstein. Maddie, 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 Frankenstein. Taylor, the keeper of Rain Saxophone Alex, the other Saxophone Alex, and up, up, Danny. Brian, Frankenstein. Any area okay? Get your gun. Frankenstein. Valerie. Thor Ragnar Josh. Frankenstein. Steven. Dot. 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 Frankenstein. That's how I'm going to say it, Steven. Dot. 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 Radiohead voice. Yeah, something like that. And of course, the man-eating monster herself from prehistoric times, Peglodon. Frankenstein. 